Ho, ho, hi, and welcome to this special Christmas edition of Grading the Nutmeg, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. To celebrate the season, I went to the holiday time machine and gathered two Christmas short stories, a holiday poem, and a Christmas song, all by Connecticut authors. Our first story, The Christmas Party, is a child's eye view of a Victorian Christmas fete and one of its reluctant participants, Raymond's Uncle Horace. Our second story, What Came to Olive Haygarth, is a sentimental Victorian Christmas morality tale from the late 1860s by Pomfret-born Louise Chandler Moulton. Old Santa Claus by Connecticut poet Abby Allen dates back to 1850. And our closing song, A Children's Christmas, was written and recorded by yours truly, hard to believe, nearly 50 years ago. So grab the cocoa, Settle into that comfy chair and give a listen to Connecticut Christmas, grating the nutmeg style. Francis S. Parsons crowded a lot of living into his 69 years a lawyer, reporter, and then state editor of the Hartford Current, leading light in innumerable civic and charitable organizations, a popular lecturer, World War I veteran, and vice chairman of Hartford National Bank and Trust. He also was a prolific author whose stories give us, among other things, an insider's view into Hartford's Gilded Age lifestyles. Here's his recollection of a Victorian Christmas party from his youth, seen through the eyes of a child. The Christmas Party by Francis Parsons We always stood rather in awe of Raymond's Uncle Horace because it was said that he had once taught Latin in a boys' school. Anyone who'd ever wielded the power of a teacher was a person with a background of authority and importance whom one could not approach too familiarly. Indeed, it would have been difficult to be familiar with Raymond's Uncle Horace under any conceivable circumstances, for he was essentially a dignified and aloof person. It was understood that the abandonment of teaching had been caused by failing health, and to the same origin was perhaps due the reserve and apparent preoccupation that militated against any real intimacy with his nephew's young friends. There was some vague story of a young wife who had died years before, but an experience of that sort was so far beyond our comprehension that the rumor added but little to the isolation in which Raymond's uncle seemed to dwell. He was never really an actor in the drama of our young lives. Sometimes appearing in the wings, more often in the critic's seat, he was an onlooker rather than a participant. One remembers him chiefly as walking back and forth on the old street between Raymond's grandfather's house and certain indefinite rooms he dwelt in, which were probably in the edifice then known as the Charter Oak Building. The impression that persists is of one very carefully wrapped up against the weather. 
He wore a long ulster, a sealskin cap with a visor, and about his neck, under his iron-gray beard, a muffler was efficiently disposed. His large, gold-rimmed spectacles gave him the customary owlish, peering expression, but in spite of them, he could not seem to recognize us or anyone else except when close at hand. He carried a stout walking stick, the point of which he never raised from the ground, but dragged after him between alternate steps, and he stood so straight that he appeared to lean a little backward. It would seem that in the warmer seasons this habitual manner of dress must have been modified, but there's no recollection of any other costume. A tradition of immense learning clung about him. It was said that in his mysterious rooms the walls were lined with books which he spent all his time in reading. It was even whispered that he read Latin and Greek for fun and no higher intellectual achievement than this could be imagined. There was something facile and careless, too, about the idea of reading for pleasure dead languages with which we had as yet no acquaintance, but which loomed as educational obstacles in the not-distant future. This casual facility appealed to our youthful sporting spirit and compelled a reluctant admiration. Whatever Raymond's uncle's shortcomings as an intimate might be, he had at least reached the point where matters that were soon to be weighty problems to us were to him merely a question of amusement. Raymond's grandparents lived in an old house around the corner from the old street. Their home was, in fact, one of the oldest houses in the city. They were people of wealth for that day, and the house had been brought up to date in the fashion of that time when the finer harmonies of the antique were not as yet appreciated. Plate glass windows had replaced the small panes, hardwood floors covered the fine oak planking, and varnished inside shutters had supplanted the dignified paneling of the originals. But our aesthetic appreciations, like those of our elders, noticed no incongruity. To us, the old house was the acme of contemporary good taste, as well as the abode of comfort and even luxury. It was here that Raymond's grandparents gave their annual Christmas party for their grandson and his friends. This was a festival famous in the young life of that neighborhood. Its celebrity was chiefly due to the gargantuan amount of delightful food available. There was a tree, of course, but the presents were of the edible rather than the permanent kind, and no less appreciated on that account. Nowhere else was there to be found such an amount and variety of candy, fruit, ice cream, cake, nuts, raisins, chicken salad, sandwiches, jellies, jams, pâté de foie gras, and other pleasing forms of nourishment, to say nothing of lemonade and various kinds of shrub, as at Raymond's Christmas party. At the close of each of these events, it did not seem that we could ever eat again. Yet there was a certain assurance of the continuance of the fete in carrying home a paper bag containing an orange, an apple, and a generous selection of sweets. After the assembly had been fed, there were games. Drop the handkerchief. Still pond no more moving. That perennial juvenile pastime where the participants chant the memorable chorus beginning 
oats, peas, beans, and barley grow. And sometimes, much against the sentiment of the boys, that embarrassing game where the player who became it was compelled to bow to the wittiest, kneel to the prettiest, and kiss the one you love best. The boys decided early in their social experience that no self-respecting male ought to play this game, and it soon fell into disrepute, though the girls fought for its continuance for a time. Youthful spirits rise with food as rapidly as does a thermometer under the sun's rays, and a good deal of noise and romping invariably accompanied these games. Raymond's dear old grandfather and grandmother enjoyed all these manifestations of young life as keenly, so far as we could see, as did the children themselves. But Uncle Horace, it was evident, did not like noise and confusion. Memory pictures him standing in the background of the party as in the background of life, a quiet spectator, blinking short-sightedly but not unkindly through his big spectacles and vanishing altogether as the excitement increased. Once one of the youthful guests, while the festivities were at their height, wandered into a remote part of the house in search of some accessory required for an approaching game and entered by a rear door a room where Uncle Horace had been reading. He had put his book down in his easy chair and was now discovered standing in the other doorway, his back to the room. An intense curiosity to look at one of Uncle Horace's learned volumes took possession of the interloper, and at that age it did not occur to him that delicacy might demand some hesitation. He tiptoed over to the chair, expecting to see on the cushion some calf-bound ancient tome, written in characters that were hieroglyphics to him. But a complete reversal of his ideas about Uncle Horace was at hand. The book that lay there was in blue and gold cloth binding and was a copy of the first edition of Huckleberry Finn. The intruder looked in some astonishment at the spare figure of Raymond's uncle and perceived that there was no danger of discovery, for the attitude was that of a man completely absorbed. He was listening intently. At this distance, the general hubbub was softened, and there was a rather wistful quality in the childish voices rising and falling with the lilting old refrain, Thus the farmer sows his seeds, thus he stands and takes his ease, stamps his foot, claps his hand, and looks around to view the land. After the lapse of a good many years, it is this picture of Raymond's Uncle Horace that is the most vivid. There was some implication in the listening figure with head slightly bowed, one hand resting on the casing of the doorway that carried, even to a childish mind, a suggestion of hitherto unsuspected aspects of the rather lonely widower's personality. At the time, it was all very vague and unformulated, and later speculation has hesitated somewhat before the privacy thus unwittingly invaded. Yet afterward, one could not help at least wondering what visions of his own childhood he saw as he listened to the silly old lines of the ancient folk game handed down through so many generations and bearing their little testimony to the continuity of experience. 
A tardy sense of eavesdropping awoke at last in the youthful visitor's mind, an understanding that he did not belong there. He slipped out as quietly as he'd entered, but he took with him a dawning appreciation of a new incarnation of Raymond's Uncle Horace. Louise Bolton Chandler rose from her rural origins in Pomfret to become one of America's most respected 19th century poets, authors, and literary critics. Her Christmas story, What Came to Olive Haygarth, is typical of the sentimental, moralistic, classist literature of the 1860s when she wrote the story, but it stands out from most such works for its vivid insights into human feeling and behavior. What Came to Olive Haygarth, A Christmas Story, by Louise Chandler Moulton. It was the afternoon of the 24th of December, a dull gray afternoon with a sky frowning over it, which was all one cloud, but from which neither rain nor snow fell. A certain insinuating breath of cold was in the air, more penetrating than the crisp, keen wind of the sharpest January day. Olive Haygarth shivered as she walked alone the bleakest side of Harrison Avenue downtown. She was making her way to Dock Square to carry home to a clothing store some vests, which she and her mother had just completed. After a while, she turned and walked across into Washington Street, for an impulse came over her to see all the bright Christmas things in the shop windows and the gay-clad people getting ready to keep holiday. She had meant when she set out for her walk to avoid them, for she knew that her mood was bitter enough already. She had left no brightness behind her at home. There were but two of them, herself and her mother, and they were poor people, with only their needles between them and want. They had never known actual suffering, however, for Mrs. Haygarth had worked in a tailor shop in her youth and had taught Olive so much of the intricacies of the business as sufficed to make her a good workwoman. Accordingly, they did their sewing so well as to command constant employment at fair prices. But after all, it was ceaseless drudging just to keep body and soul together. What was the use of it all? Not employment enough in any one day to pay for living. Why not as well lie down and die at once? She walked on sullenly, thinking of these things. An elegant carriage stopped just in front of her, and a girl no older than herself got out, trailing her rich silk across the sidewalk, and went into a fashionable jeweler's. Olive stopped, and looking in at the window, ostensibly at the vases and bronzes, watched the girl with her dainty, high-bred air. She noted every separate item of her loveliness, the delicate coloring, the hair so tastefully arranged, the pure, regular features. Then she looked at the lustrous silk, the soft furs, the bonnet, which was a pink and white miracle of blonde and rosebuds. How much of the beauty was the girl's very self, and how much did she owe to this splendid setting? 
Olive had seen cheeks and lips as bright and hair as shining when she tied on her own unbecoming dark straw bonnet before her own dingy-looking glass. She went on with renewed bitterness, asking herself over and over again, why, why, why? Did not the Bible say that God was no respecter of persons? But why did he make some, like that girl in there, to feed on the roses and lie in the lilies of life, to wear silks and furs and jewels and laces, and then make her to work buttonholes in Butler and Company's vests? Was there any God at all? Or if there was, did he not make some people and forget them altogether while he was heaping good things on others whom he liked better? She could not understand it. And then to be told to love God after all, and that he pitied her as a father pitied his children. Why? That girl in the silk dress could love God easily. That command must have been meant for her. Going on, she caught a glimpse of an illumination in the window of a print shop. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men was the legend set forth by the brilliantly colored letters. What a mockery those words seemed to be. There'd never been peace or goodwill in their house, even in the old days when they were tolerably prosperous before her father went away. She walked very slowly now, for she was thinking of that old time. She had loved her father more than she'd ever loved anyone else. To her, he had always been kind. He'd never found fault with her, and had smoothed all the rough places out of her life. Her mother had been neat and smart and capable, as the New England phrase is. Higher praise than this, Mrs. Haygarth did not covet. But like many capable women, she had acquired a habit of small fault-finding, a perpetual dropping, which would have worn even a stone, and George Haygarth was no stone. The woman loved her husband, doubtless, in some fashion of her own, but to save her life she could not have kept from nagging him. She fretted if he brought mud upon his shoes over her clean floor, if he spent money on any pleasure for himself, any extra indulgence for Olive, about all if he ever took a fancy to keep holiday. Just five years ago, things had come to a climax. Olive was 13 years old then, and he had brought her home for Christmas some ornaments, a pin and earrings, not very expensive, but in Mrs. Haygarth's eyes, useless and unnecessary. She assailed him bitterly, and for a marvel he heard her out in dumb silence, when she was all through, he only said, I think I can spare the $8 they cost me, since I'm not likely to give the girl anything again for some time. It will be too far to send Christmas gifts from Colorado. Mrs. Hagar's temper was up, and she answered him with an evil sneer, Colorado indeed. Colorado is peopled with wide-awake men. It's no place for you out there. He made no reply only got up and went out, and going by Olive, he stooped and kissed her. How well she remembered that kiss. Through the week afterward, he went to his work as usual, but he spent scarcely any time at home, and when there, made little talk. All his wife's accustomed flings and innuendos fell on his ears apparently unheeded. The night before New Year's, he was busy a long time in his own room, when he came out, 
he handed Mrs. Haygarth a folded paper. There, he said, is the receipt for the next year's rent. And before that time is out, I shall send you the money, if I am prospered, to pay for another year. I've taken from the savings bank enough to carry me to Colorado and keep me a little while after I get there. And the bank book, with the rest of the $500, I have transferred to you. If I have any luck, you shall never want, you and Olive. You'll be better off without me. I think I've always been an aggravation to you, Martha, only an aggravation. He went back again into his room and came out with a valise packed full. I think I'll go away now, he said. The train starts in an hour, and there's no need of my troubling you any longer. Then he had taken Olive into his arms, and she had felt some sudden kisses on her cheek, some hot tears on her face, but he had said nothing to her, only the one sentence gasped out like a groan. Father's little one, father's little one. Olive shivered and then grew hot again as she remembered it and remembered how wistfully he had looked afterwards at his wife, reading no encouragement in her sharp, contemptuous face. I guess you'll see Colorado about as much as I shall, said Martha Hagar sneeringly. Your courage may last 50 miles. He did not answer. He just shut the door behind him and went out into the night. And she had never seen him since. Never heard his voice since that last cry, Father's little one. She felt the thick coming tears blinding her eyes, but she brushed them resolutely away and looked up at the old south clock just before her. Almost five. The sun had set nearly half an hour ago, and the night was falling fast. How long a time she had spent in walking the short distance since she came into Washington Street. How late home she should be. She quickened her steps almost to a run, went to the clothing store where she had to wait a little while for her work to be looked over and paid for, and heard the clock strike six just as she reached the corner of Essex Street on her homeward way. The dense, hurrying crowd jostled and pressed her, and she turned the corner. She would find more room on the avenue, she thought. She had not noticed that two young men were following her closely. They would have been gentlemen if they had obeyed the laws of God and man. As it was, there was about them the look which nothing expresses so well as the word fast. Their very features had become coarse and lowered in tone by the lives they led, and yet they were the descendants of men whose names were honored in the state and made glorious by the traditions of true Christian knighthood. On the other side of the way, alike unnoticed by Olive and her pursuers, a man walked on steadily, never losing sight of them for a moment. At last, as she came into a quiet portion of the street, the two young men drew near her. They were simply, what I have said, fast. They perhaps meant no real harm and thought it would be good fun to frighten her. Where are you going, my pretty maid, said one, the bolder and handsomer of the two. My face is my fortune, sir, she said, responded the other, in a voice which the wine he had taken for dinner made a little thick and unsteady. You ought not to be out alone, the first began again, 
You are quite too young and too pretty. That she is, a loud, stern voice answered, when there are such vile hounds as you ready to insult an unprotected girl. Surely it was a voice Olive knew, only stronger and more resolute than she'd ever heard it before. She turned suddenly, and the gaslight struck full on her flushed, frightened, pretty face, which the drooping hair shaded. The man who had crossed the street to come to her rescue looked at her a moment, and then, as if involuntarily, came to his lips the old fond words, the last she had ever heard him speak, Father's little one. He opened his arms, and she, poor tired girl, crept into their shelter. The two young men stood by waiting, enough of the nobility of the old blood in them to keep them from running away, though their nerves tingled with shame. George Hagar spoke to them with quiet, manly dignity. When I saw you following this girl, I had no idea she was my girl whom I had not seen for five years. It was enough for me that she was a woman. To my thinking, it's a poor manhood that insults women instead of protecting them. I meant to look out for her, and be she who she might be, you should not have harmed her. We never meant her any real harm, the elder of the two said humbly, but we've learned our lesson, and I think we shall neither of us forget it. Young lady, we beg your pardon. Then they lifted their hats and went away, and George Hagarth drew his daughter's hand through his arm and walked on, telling his story as he walked. He'd been unsuccessful at first. For more than 18 months, he had scarcely been able to keep himself alive. Fever had wasted him, plans had failed him, and hope had deserted him. The very first money he could possibly spare, he had sent home with a long, loving letter to the absent, over whom his heart yearned. But money and letter had both come back to him after a while from the dead letter office. Yes, Olive said, we were too poor to keep on there after the year for which you paid was out and we've moved two or three times since then. The postman didn't know where to find us, and after the first year, we gave up asking for letters at the office. Her father's hand clasped hers tighter in sympathy, and then he told her the rest of his story. He had never been very prosperous, never seen any such golden chances as the mining legend's picture, but he had come home better off than he ever should have been if he'd stayed in the East. For a whole week he'd been in Boston, searching for them everywhere, and not knowing how much longer he might have to wait, but for this accident. Don't say accident, Olive answered softly. It was God's way of bringing us together. I begin to see now what it means when the Bible says, He is touched by our infirmities and pities our necessities. And yet, only this afternoon I was losing all my faith and thinking that if he cared for all the rest of the world, he had forgotten me. Here we are, the next house is home. Your mother? How will she receive me, Olive? Olive's heart seemed to stand still. Her mother had been so bitter through all these years had said such cruel things about this man, whom she accused of deserting his family and leaving them to starve, of caring only for himself. 
She did not speak. She didn't know what to say. You must go in and break it to her, George Hagar said, as they climbed the stairs of the humble tenement house, the third story of which the mother and daughter occupied. I will stay outside and wait. It won't be coming home at all if Martha doesn't bid me welcome. Olive went in, trembling. Here is the money, mother. Mrs. Haygarth reached out her hand for it and looked at it. Yes, it's all right, but I thought you were never coming home. What kept you? I looked into the windows a good deal as I went down, and then I had to wait at the store. And I've been thinking, mother, it'll be five years next week since father went away. What if we could see him again? She paused, expecting to hear some of the old bitter words about her father. But instead, her mother's voice fell softly upon her ear. I've been thinking too, love, and I believe he's dead. I don't think I used to be patient enough with him, and perhaps I wore his love out. But he did care for you, and seems to me nothing short of death could have kept him away so long. But if you could see him, mother, Olive persisted with trembling voice. Some new thought pierced Martha Hagar's brain. A strange thrill shook her. She looked an instant into Olive's eyes. Then without a word, she sprang to the door and threw it open. Olive heard a low, passionate cry. George, George, if I was cross, I did love you. And Olive saw a figure come out of the shadow and take her mother close in its arms. And then she hid her eyes and said a little prayer. She never knew what. So after all, God had not forgotten them. Just when their want was sorest, their help had come. And they needed all they had suffered, perhaps, to teach her mother what love was worth and what forbearance signified. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. From the very sky, the words seemed to drop down to her like an angelic blessing. And now to their home, the reign of peace had come, and she understood what the benediction meant. The Puritan founders of Connecticut may have rejected Christmas as a holiday with too much fun and frolic, but by the 1850s, Santa's midnight visits to Connecticut children had become an expected feature of a favorite nutmeg state holiday. This short poem by Connecticut poet Abby Allen tells how old Santa Claus prepared for his visits. Old Santa Claus by Abby Allen Old Santa Claus sat all alone in his den, with his leg crossed over his knee, while a comical look peeped out at his eyes, for a funny old fella is he. His queer little cap was tumbled and torn, and his wig it was all awry. But he sat and mused the whole day long, while the hours went flying by. He had been as busy as busy could be in filling his pack with toys. He had geared his nuts and baked his pies to give to the girls and boys. 
There were dolls for the girls and whips for the boys, with wheelbarrows, horses, and drays, and bureaus and trunks for Dolly's new clothes, all these in his pack he displays. Of candy, too, both twisted and striped, he had furnished a plentiful store, with raisins and figs and prunes and grapes hung upon a peg by the door. I'm almost ready, quoth he, quoth he, and Christmas is almost here. But one thing more, I must write them a book and give to each one this year. So he clapped his specks on his little round nose and seizing the stump of a pen, he wrote more lines in one little hour than you ever could read in 10. He told them stories all pretty and new and wrote them all out in rhyme then packed them away with his box of toys to distribute one at a time. And Christmas Eve, when all were in bed, right down the chimney he flew, and stretching his socking leg at the top, he clapped in a book for you. We close our Christmas episode with a walk down memory lane. Well, my memory lane, anyway. Long before I became Connecticut State Historian, I was a country music songwriter in Nashville. And back then, on a Christmas Eve long ago and far away, I was thinking about my early Christmases and my own children's Christmases, and I wrote this song. Years went by and I almost forgot it, till last year an old friend called and said, Did you know that your old Christmas song is on YouTube? Well, I didn't know. But from me and YouTube, I wish you a children's Christmas.
Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Francis S. Parsons, Louise Chandler Moulton, Abby Allen, and all the alumni of Perfect Pitch. I'm Walt Woodward, and on behalf of the Office of the State Historian, Connecticut Explored Magazine, and the Grading the Nutmeg team, we wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a contented New Year.